0: Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, your host for today's episode of New Books in American Studies. Today I'll be speaking with Lily Geismer about her fascinating new book called Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. It was published by Princeton University Press in 2014. The book tracks broad economic changes, namely the emergence of a knowledge-based economy and the proliferation of white-collar work, in a local setting the suburbs of Boston. Geismer shows how these new economic conditions of the high-tech corridor of the Route 128 highway also helped transform the ideological content and organizing strategies of liberalism and then eventually the Democratic Party. It is an interesting and important story that shakes up some of the older and predominantly conservative narratives about suburbanization as well as some of the narratives that credit the rise of the new right for the changes to the Democratic Party in the 1970s and 80s. The book should be of interest to political historians, urban and suburban historians, and historians of science and technology. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Lily Geismer about a really smart, relevant, and engaging book, Don't Blame Us. Thanks for joining me today, Lily.
1: Thanks so much for having me and for that wonderful uh, endorsement of the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, so we always begin our show with a question about how you came to history. Uh, how did you become a historian?
1: First, it's taken me a long time to even call myself a historian. But um, I studied history and as an undergrad at Brown University. And I always had been Really interested in questions about politics of the present, and I realized that a lot of the, the sort of questions I had, both about sort of um, the kinds of changes in um, political parties and ideologies, and then also about inequality, were best answered by looking to the past, and especially the kind the recent past. Um, and so, as an as an undergraduate, I took a lot of classes in recent American history, and th- really the um, the. Inspiration for pursuing history was writing my senior thesis. So um, after doing that um, experience and um, going deep into the kind of archives, um, it sent me into the idea that maybe I should do this, do more of it. And so I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan and, um, and pursued a PhD there.
0: Perfect. As you know, I spoke to uh, one of your colleagues from the University of Michigan and apparently a former co-host of your own podcast, uh, Andrew Needham. Uh, And uh, he described your time or his time at the University of Michigan as an idiosyncratic moment um, because there were just like a bunch of students um, who were all kind of orbiting around suburban history um, in various different forms. Can you talk about that experience and how it informed your project on the suburbs of Boston?
1: Yeah, it's fascinating because I, I have this this nostalgia um, for graduate school, <laughs> which I know for graduate students is probably funny to hear, but um, but I and I realized talking to um, talking to the professors there that it was a kind of unique moment of a lot of people sort of coming together who were really interested in these questions, and so the thing when I went to graduate school, um, my My interests were actually much more in national politics. I thought I was going to write a national study on um, political realignment. So I was really interested in questions of liberalism, but I really thought I would answer those at kind of a national level. Um, And one of the things that was really exciting is that there was um, a lot of people at Michigan sort of um, organized, um, especially around Matt Lasseter, who became my advisor, Mm -hmm who were interested in sort of these um, these questions of um, of metropolitan history. A lot of it was sort of um, inspired um, by works like um, Tom Sugrue's Origins of the Urban Crisis and kind of all the scholarship that sort of fueled. Um, but we had a cohort of people um, like Andrew Needham, Nathan Connolly, Andrew Highsmith, um, Clay Howard, Tamar Carroll, um, who were all sort of coming together with these kind of questions around um around urban um, urban space um, and one of the great things that um, Matt had a class himself but he also um, had a uh, the Metropolitan History Workshop which brought together all these students who are working on these questions um, but it also um, brought in scholars um, so every month we would have a different person come in and so um, it's how I got to know Kevin Cruz and Joe Crispino and Robert Self and um, people like that who are working on these kinds of issues and questions it was right when their books were just coming out and it Really, kind of inspired my own thinking, and I realized that um, both the um, the kinds of questions that I was interested in about liberalism at the, the national level could be best sort of answered um, at the um, at at a local level. Um, and I think that in some ways that was inspired by the the works that were coming out in scholarship, but it was also really inspired by the conversations with my um, with my peers.
0: Perfect. Uh, Yeah, I've, uh, uh, I've, I'm really impressed with how different each of your projects have been, Uh, you know, like, like from like Nathan Connolly's work on Florida to Needham's work on uh, the Southwest yours. Um, But there is this level of sophistication that all of them share. I was wondering if you could say just a little bit about how this dissertation became a book.
1: So one of the things that ended up happening from those kinds of conversations or looking at the scholarship, and this is often what happens amongst amongst scholars, is that um, I was interested in the questions of sort of the missing... Um, the missing pieces um, of the uh, in the literature, and I noticed that there wasn't a lot of discussion about this, or the story of liberalism was largely told as the story of um, the decline of liberalism and the Democratic Party. Um, and within the kind of literature, both in terms of at the sort of intersection of um, political and urban history, there wasn't a lot of discussion about the ways in which liberalism had persisted, um, and uh, particularly its persistence in the suburbs. And so, another thing that I was fascinated in is that there was um, a lot of the literature on suburban, um, suburban politics focused primarily on, um, conservatives. Um, and, um, especially, I mean, sort of building on, um, the really fantastic and influential book, Lisa McGurr's, um, Suburban Warriors, um, and things like, um, Kevin Cruz's White Flight. I think Matt Lasseter's book to some degree deals with sort of a different type of, um, suburban resident of looking at more sort of moderate voters. But regardless, there wasn't a kind of emphasis on these kind of the kind of people who self-identified as liberals. Um, and I wanted to kind of understand who they were and also think about this juxtaposition of um, that many, many of the places that are most liberal are also the most um, racially segregated and unequal, and sort of how mm-hmm. those two things together speak to kind of the, um, the persistence of, of liberalism um, and de- the Democratic Party in the United States. And so, those were the kinds of um, core questions that sort of set out to inform my dissertation. And um, I went to Boston, which is where I grew up, um, to kind of understand these kinds of questions. Um, and I did a tremendous amount of um, archival research. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and really kind of using kind of, in some ways, original social, social history methodology to kind of understand these types of kind of bigger questions about, um, about politics. Um, and so with my dissertation, um, I... I wrote a um, a very very long dissertation. Um, it was over seven hundred pages long. <laughs> um, so it um, it was a that and that was it, that was never going to be um, able to be published. And I actually in I made that decision somewhat consciously um, to write a long dissertation because I'd done all of this research and I kind of wanted it to be somewhere. So um, so that was one thing that was kind of what the dissertation was. Um, and I think that in the course of studying it, one of the questions I was really interested in. You can kind of see this in the the project. It's the um, the sort of the way that the chapters are structured. I was initially really interested in um, questions around civil rights in the North and kind of these questions around the, these particular kind of these particular sort of suburban liberal activists on issues like fair housing um, and schools. Um, and then I as I was working on the project, I became more interested or, or sort of equally interested in the questions around their, um, the ways in which they were they were intersecting with the kind of knowledge economy um, and these kind of these knowledge workers where they were working, um, their involvement in the kind of high high tech um, sort of industry, first the military industrial complex then high tech industry, um, and how in that way it was really sort of shaping places that they lived, um, their homeowner politics. And so one of the things that the book, the difference of the dissertation to the book was that that particular kind of question, like I think that in the dissertation, where I used where they worked as kind of descriptive elements, like this was something to sort of explain who, that these kinds of issues. But as I worked on the book more and more, I got interested in that as a kind of as a kind of explanatory factor. Mm-hmm. And so I became, I thought more about this question of these kinds of well, the sort the of ethos of the engineer. Um, so I went back and did a lot of there's there's actually a very Rich literature on um, why, from the '60s in sociology, of sort of why um, why engineers um, don't join unions,
0: hmm.
1: um, and so I was, and sort of why white collar workers don't don't aren't part of unions, and that that question actually interest came to sort of interest me and in think think about how that sort of is shaping the types of class interests um, that inform inform these kinds of workers but then also come to inform their, um, their politics um, and, the, and largely the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So those are, the, those are some of the things that um, sh- shape, shifted. I also did um, more research on um, national, um, national campaigns, um, and so especially looking at the McGovern campaign. And so there's a chapter in the book on the McGovern campaign, which was re- rewritten from the dissertation, um, and then also on um, Dukakis and the Democratic Party in the 1980s that I reworked.
0: Great. You've, uh, you've put a lot on the table so far. Uh, You've done a good job of introducing the book. But there's one thing that I'd like you to elaborate on uh, a little bit more. Can you set the scene for us in uh, the suburbs along Route 128? What makes those suburbs unique? And perhaps how are they representative of other suburbs?
1: Sure. So the suburbs that I focus on uh, in the book um, are this set of um, up suburbs along um, the Route 128 corridor, which is a, um, both a high, it's a sort of semicircle around that that circles the city. Um, and what Route 128 becomes in the post-war era is like kind of the... Um, Equivalent to Silicon Valley as this kind of this place for sort of high tech industry. So it um, in the aftermath of um, World War Two, um, a lot of both big and small businesses spun off from Harvard and MIT. Um, And move to the Route 128 corridor. Um, And so what I was interested in um, are the set of sort of suburban communities that house the kind of people who work um, both at these industries and then also at the um, universities and other kind of white collar industry. And the particular communities um, that I focus on are places like Concord and Lexington and Newton and Brookline all of which sort of have national resonance um, both for their sort of historical connotations and one of the things that interested me is that the the they get these these are older communities that but then in the post-war era get a huge new wave of migration of kind of upper class upper middle class um, educated people um, who move to them both because they have proximity to their jobs, but also because these are communities that have Enormously, sort of high quality of life. They're both very attractive, um, the, and then they also have um, really good, good schools. And they they tend to have um, a kind of there's kind of a feedback loop in that they get a reputation as of a tr- of being um, liberal places. Then mm-hmm. um, they become to sort of attract more kinds of like minded liberal people who want to live there. What this process also does is to make them um, more and more. Um, Economically exclusive, um, and so they're—they um, have sort of liberal politics, but they also are communities that have uh, many of them have. Uh, one acre minimum um, zoning. So you can't, you can't have a, a lot that's smaller than um, one acre and has to have a single family detached home. So that sort of excludes that, that sort of prevents any person who can't afford that from living there. And so um, I was interested in sort of understanding that process. So in some ways, these are communities that see themselves as quite distinctive. And in the book, I talk a lot about both the idea of Massachusetts, there's an idea of Massachusetts exceptionalism, that the state sort of sees itself as distinctive from other places. Um, But that each of these communities has a sense that they're not like other suburbs. So they're not like Levittown, or the kind of particular mass produced suburbs. Um, And one of the things that I wanted to kind of show is that on some level, they actually are They're the sort of the processes that that um, lead people to them. And their effect on the kind of uh, their their sort of this their structural effect, I guess, is quite is similar to any other kind of suburb. So that was one thing I was sort of seeking to kind of unpack. And the other thing I wanted to show is that they're actually representative, and the people who live there of a particular type of suburban um, resident who lives ac- across the country. So that um, these kind of blue suburbanites are um, are not unique to Massachusetts, but are, um, but are in a lot of these kind of knowledge-based communities around the country. um, And increasingly have had an, and and then understand how they actually had an impact both on um, the state politics in Massachusetts, but then on the national, on national politics.
0: Great. And so I want to talk more about the politics of these suburban liberals. Uh, And so, You know, many of the people that you explore were uh, well-meaning, committed to progressive reform, and you know, even engaged in a lot of um, political activism. Um, But uh, suburban liberalism always came up against certain limits that foreclosed the addressing of structural issues. Um, So, what did suburban liberals care about, and what were the limits to their ideology?
1: So, suburban liberals care about what becomes sort of. quality of life, liberal issues. So they're committed to, um, they're committed to civil rights nationally. A lot of they're, they're actually come up very much against um, the Vietnam War, so the sort of anti-war in their politics, um, their environment, pro-environmentalism, um, pro-choice. And so and believe in kind of certain, certain issues of sort of basic sort of civil rights. They're especially interested in issues that sort of benefit them. And so in some ways, a lot of those ideas, those are things that actually personally benefit them. Um, one of the things I argue in the book is that they're the most liberal and issues that, that are the furthest away from, um, their, their own property values. Um, mm tax rates um, and children's education. So in these communities, that there is a tremendous amount of activism, but it's it's activism. It's sort of um, on issues like the Vietnam War, which is the furthest away from affecting their kind of person, in some ways, their, their material well-being. Although some people do work in defense industries, but um, or on other kinds of issues like to the civil rights, like sort of civil rights at the national level, whereas when an issue becomes increasingly um, closer to affecting these kinds of other, these other kinds of um, ways in which it could sort of individually affect people to see it break down. Um, And so especially the, I have chapters on um, fights that happen over affordable housing, over um, two-way metropolitan school integration. Um, And then um, on other kinds of tax, sort of tax reform issues, Um, there are people committed, progressive activists who um, seek to sort of, who are are still committed and seek to try to get things like affordable housing in. But those often do come up, um, come up short. Um, And so one of the arguments of the book is that the liberals, suburban liberals often or overwhelmingly support individual solutions to structural problems. So the classic example that I is, um, on issues of fair housing. So there's this really active, um, fair housing movement that forges forms in the suburbs of Boston, um, that help that the, and the idea is to help, um, help African Americans who can't get access to these communities to be able to um move in. But it's often things like, first of all, it's they're trying to help middle class African Americans move into their community. So it's like it's trying to help like a, a Harvard professor who can't get access to the community to help move in, or a doctor or engineer. Um and um, what those, th- this movement is incredibly active and helps to get, um, helps that, that sort of individual move in, um, but doesn't change the kind of larger patterns of um, structural segregation or inequality in, um, in metropolitan Boston. Um, they get a, a fair housing law passed, um, which is one of the, the first in the country. But at the same time, that's, a, that's an anti-discrimination um law but that doesn't actually change these larger patterns and stru- these larger structures um and i often argue i often ar- i argue that this often actually makes the problem worse um because it sort of compounds these individual solutions be- in some ways can often foreclose the possibility for um for more structural more structural solutions
0: i think right now would be a good time to talk about your title. Um, so why is it so important for, um, these, uh, suburban liberals to be blameless
1: to them, Well, the title, so the title comes, um, from a bumper sticker that, um, appeared on cars, um, in the aftermath of the, um, the 1972 election. And so this is the moment that I start the book with, um, which is the fact that in 1970, um, In 1972, Massachusetts was the only state that voted for George McGovern. And so after during Watergate, there were these bumper stickers that appeared that said, um, don't blame me, I'm from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I use that idea as a kind of jumping off point to sort of think about this idea that Massachusetts has been seen as sort of this exceptional place and that people there see themselves as exceptional. But I think there's also this idea of kind of don't blame um, that people in the suburbs the, the kinds of suburban liberals it's part of a larger ethos that they're not to blame for larger problems that they're trying hard um that um you know you often see this as the sort of that racism is something that happens um in the south um or the other side is that the other the other thing that that this is taking place in the backdrop of is the boston busing crisis and that they're not like the people in so the the sort of um the people in south boston who are actively trying to stop um african americans from going to um going to their schools and so one of the things that that was that sort of idea of this um, this ethos is is of, of not of being blameless is is, is a, a key part of their sort of po- political identity um, and you can see variations of this 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 happens we can see this, re- this reconstitutes itself time and time again in various different kinds of liberal um liberal and democratic politics um i guess i left up um in some ways, an open question of how much they're to blame or not, um, and this goes to the idea that like a lot of the a lot of the problems of inequality um, that the they're the representation of are the the product of federal policies um, and and state policies and other kinds of and local and local policies to some degree as well, um, and so the question is like how much actually are these individuals to blame, um, and that was one thing I sort of try to kind of show throughout the, um, the, the book to sort of have, um, be thinking about this question of how much are they themselves? Because they often are the target, um, and especially in Boston, um, uh, amongst working class whites that the problems of, um, segregation are these suburban liberals who are not, who have left, um, and are, and are trying to kind of impose things like busing onto working class people, um. And there's a question of like, how much are they are they actually to blame for a lot of a lot of these kinds of problems? Are they themselves the the, the are they themselves kind of um, the as the limited um, or circumscribed by the these various different federal policies in some ways as well? So they both benefited from them, but it also kind of circumscribes what they can do. Um, and that um, that was one thing. That's one thing I sort of seek to um, to um, sort of interrogate or or demonstrate, I guess, um, throughout the book.
0: Great. Um, So there's uh, one story that I really want you to uh, tell our listeners, um, and that's about the uh, extension of the red line train into the suburbs and uh um sort of like the fights over it and what it was eventually um uh, replaced with uh and so uh this is in a chapter about you know suburbanite anxieties over um urban sprawl and unchecked growth and how that would threaten some of the uh you know the unique um aspects of suburban living and so they, you know, these suburban liberals were fighting for um, open spaces of the suburbs. uh, And that took many forms, including like, you know, blocking highway constructions or expansions, but then eventually also the red line expansion. Um, So can you just tell our listeners about that story and what it reveals about suburban politics?
1: Sure. So this is a fascinating kind of moment. And I would say, so one, there's a chapter in the book on these kind of open space movements, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, and which is an interesting component because we think of, we tend to think of environmentalism, or at least I think, I I think it's like how my, I thought about it growing up and how my students think about it as like an un, sort of an unmitigated good. Um, and so there was huge efforts within the suburbs, um, these sort of suburban communities to, um, to protect open space um, and sort of natural resources um, in the early, the late 1950s and early 1960s. And so they get state laws passed to do so. And so what's fascinating that the um in the town of Concord, which is one of the communities I look at, but essentially like a quarter of the town is under um, is under some sort of conservation, is, is part of some sort of conservation protection. Um, One of the things about that, so it's nice, concrete's really pretty, but, um, that also makes it far more exclusive because you're basically preventing any kind of uh, further growth from happening in the community. Um, and so it's also a way of keeping, um, keeping, um, Tax rates low because you have less kids in the schools and other kinds of services you have to pay for, um, and then also keeping property values high. But the other component – so that's that's something that happens. And then another thing with environmentalism is just a side note that the book talks about um, is the ways in which it becomes a means to prevent um, – prevent affordable housing from getting built in a lot of communities, because there's this idea of kind of challenging its, its environmental, um, the environmental dimension components of it that, you know, that, um, so that um, that's, these are some of the ways of sort of thinking about the kind of um, the downsides of um, suburban environmentalism. But the other thing, the these same kind of movements who are part of these kind of open space space groups actually get involved in the 1960s um, in a fight in Boston our uh, coalition um, to stop the construction of um, the Inner Highway. So Boston, like many. Um, like many communities or many cities around the country um had a had what's either called the highway or freer revolt where finally residents sort of st- stand up and say we don't want any more um highway construction in our co- it, through our communities um and so sort of in response to the kind of big urban uh, urban renewal programs in the 1950s um and one of the things really and i mean this is it's a fascinating thing so boston was supposed to have a, this an, an a further kind of circular um road that cut through many um many communities and so because of the ways, the communities that it was going to affect, it actually creates this kind of cross-class, cross-racial coalition to fight it of kind of suburban environmentalists, um, African-American and working class, um, white working class residents. um, And if, if for people who are familiar with Boston and places like Roxbury um, and Dorchester and Jamaica Plain, and then kind of suburban environmentalists were upset that it was going to go through um, conservation land and Milton and Brookline. And so they, they actually convince the the governor to put a moratorium on highway construction. And it's the first of these kind of these in the, the, um, the country and what they do is get the money that was going to go to highways to go into um, the construction of um, of public transit um, and mass transit. And so in the U S just for people who are not geeks about Transportation, like I am, um, the, um, a lot of the money um, for or all the money basically for transportation in the U.S. in the post-war era was going towards highways, and so very little was going to um, was going to public transit. So that's one of the reasons that people often argue that we have this kind of uh, it as as long-term effects on our, our mass transit system and um, more yeah. broadly. So anyway, the basically um, what they um, what they do is it actually is what leads to Boston to expand. Um, it's um it's Mass its um, its subway system, um, and so um, they um, they put subway lines where the where the where where the inner belt was going to be, and so they they expand the orange line. Um, they also expand the red line, um, and so um, the red line used to stop at Harvard Square, but they um, they extend it. And part of the plan was to extend. Um, they this builds on a different plan um, to extend the red line, um, which is I will say, biasly as a Massachusetts resident, is the best line. It's the fastest. The nicest line, yeah. but it was going to go from Harvard Square. Um, so it was going go to go Harvard Square to Route One Twenty Eight, um, passing through many of the these the kinds of comu- the communities that I study. Um, and this, um, in the the residents actually stand up to stop the construction of the um, of the red line. Um, and so what they see, their fear is that um, it will bring. Kind of um, undesirable inner city residents out to suburban communities. Um, What this does is actually prevents. I mean, now you um, that having a mass there was no mass transit line to help um, inner city residents get into get get access to jobs on Route One Twenty Eight. If you didn't have a car, Um, and this would have been one way to do so, or to for service workers to have access to a lot of the kind of employment opportunities that are on um, that are around the um, around the highway and in these kinds of um, in these kinds of communities Um, and so I think it's a place of kind of thinking about the kinds of um, the kind of real self-interested dimensions um, these kind of suburban um, liberal politics and the kind of where their kind of environmentalism is not thinking more collectively it's really about kind of protecting open space in their communities but not necessarily kind of what would be better for the environment to not have all these uh, cars I mean not to, to not have cars and you have a mass transit line what ends up happening to the it's it's um, the right of way where this was actually going to happen? Um, um, they have to do something with it, and so they decided to turn it into a bike path. Um, and so now it's this incredibly popular bike path in Boston, which is which is really nice for people who live near it. Um, it's it's like a very it's it's a, it's actually like an overcrowded bike path, um, but it hasn't allowed for the kinds of um, Equity That would have come from having a a transit line. Um, As a side note, I actually think that um, it's a it's an interesting like as the coda to this, um, an interesting question where residents were acting immediately and thinking about their property that that they didn't want to be near a um, public transit line. in the '70s, the idea that this, like that would bring out criminals and other kinds of things, and um, but it actually ended up hurting their property values in the long term hmm. because now property values are higher around. It's high, it's more expensive and and more desirable to live near transit lines. People want to live near. I don't want to commute by car and want to live near um, near um, subway lines or um, and subways over buses, and so it actually like hurt these communities in some capacity, but it 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 enabled a sort of particular kind of exclusivity. Uh, A similar response to subways coming in um, and the extension of subways also happens um, in um, Atlanta. So there's efforts to kind of um, expand their line, and then also a a similar fight happens in um, happens in San Francisco. um, So to go into Marin. Um, and I will say this, I now um, I now live in Los Angeles and there's been um, years and years of a battle to get um, to get um, subway lines that would potentially go through um, Beverly Hills so that they've, they've been fighting. It's been like a, a tw- I, I don't want to give the number wrong, but it's been like a 20 year battle.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, thankfully, Elon Musk is going to build like individual tunnels for everyone, and you don't need to worry about public transit. (laughs)
1: Exactly. It's all going to so it it, it, pretty, and then citizens will take rockets everywhere. So it'll be, it'll all be all good. Yeah.
0: Anything but sharing a bus with someone. (laughs) Um, So uh, I want to move on to uh, the second part of the book. Um, So uh, as you've already um, uh, said a few times, your book is not just about the suburbs, but it's also about the transformation of the Democratic Party. Uh, And one figure that is really key here is George McGovern. Um, And so in 1972, McGovern was the first Democratic candidate to do better with white collar workers than with blue collar workers. Um, But uh, you you write that this shift was hidden by the fact that McGovern lost the election and people kind of pinned him down as um, sort of like this, like nostalgic 1960s candidate um, and thinking that he was stuck in the past. And just as a side note, I really uh, appreciate this like interpretation of an electoral loss as, as like a really key moment that's like that's like revealing these like broader, longer term um, structural changes. Um, and so why did George McGovern appeal to middle class suburbanites and why were suburbanites becoming more important to the Democratic Party?
1: Sure. The, yeah. And this is like sort of key question of the book. So as I said, that there was this, this Massachusetts, the only state to vote for McGovern and McGovern is often treated as this huge loser. And so this idea like this is the kind of the, the like the sort of nature of the party. And so where they just um, and um, and that he was the, and, and and gets kind of characterized by the idea that he for the three A's that he was for um Abortion, amnesty and acid. And mm-hmm. I think that what ended up, what that has done is kind of a, mis, uh, a misunderstanding of who McGovern was and the kind of things that he stood for. And so one of the things that I looked at is that he actually he does, as you mentioned, um, is the representation of this, this shift that's going on in the kind of um, the center of gravity of the party more and more towards, um, towards upper middle class whites and so that was one of the big questions that i was sort of i mean one of the key components of the book is to really think about this this shift that happened so as the party becomes moves from being urban um and um and more blue collar that's the traditional base to sort of suburban white collar um, i see mcgovern is really key to that it's like a number of different things that sort of make mcgovern popular among these um these voters so in these communities i look at they they come out huge for mcgovern Um, which surprised me in some ways, because um he that would on if you have a lot of engineers, um he was anti-war. um, and so that would seem just that they wouldn't that that they sort of would be out of jobs. but what McGovern, McGovern actually was um, made made a conscious effort to kind of appeal to um, white collar um, workers, um especially um, in um, in defense based industries and to people like engineers, to sort of to in, in some ways to sort of help that with the, one of his big issues was the kind of transition to the peacetime economy and that you would be, your knowledge would be applied to this kind of new, these kinds of new jobs. And so he really rec- he recognized um, in some, in, um, that the sort of future was in high tech um, or tech oriented jobs. And so that was one thing that he was kind of starting to pursue. And one thing I look at is that that becomes kind of um, you start to see the Democratic Party more and more pushing um, these kinds of high tech growth, high tech based economic plans, both as a means of kind of ensuring growth, but also as a means of kind of securing these particular kinds of voters. Um, the other thing that happens as a side note and where McGovern becomes um crucial is he was also the chairman before the um before the 1972 election um he was the chair of the um the um Fraser McGovern um commission which is his effort to kind of cha- um to to reshape how the um democratic party chose its delegates um and so what ends up the other thing that sort of important about 1972 is that you have this new system of picking delegates, which actually gives a lot more power to, um, to suburban, um, white suburban voters and, um, as well as, um, um, pe- people of color and women and so other represented groups um, come to have a, a, more of a say within the party system. That does eventually, they eventually sort of go back um, to a system with superdelegates and things like that. But there is this, this moment um, in 1972 where um, you see these kinds of voters getting, or um, are, are people having more of a say. Um, and so that's another thing why I think it's really important to kind of look to this particular moment. But what I argue is that a lot of other, that, um, that, that, um, McGovern wasn't running this kind of nostalgia campaign, um, that, that the story is told that like the party decides that they have to kind of move away from this strategy and, um, and go towards the middle. Um, but actually that a lot of the, the sort of continue, you can see the kind of threads of his, um, his approach, um, in, um, in the subsequent moves that the democratic party makes.
0: Great. Uh, and, As the suburban liberals are becoming more important for the Democratic Party in the 1970s, um, suburban liberal activism experienced certain setbacks in uh, local battles over affordable housing and the expansion of METCO, I'm forgetting the acronym right now, Uh, but uh, uh, as well as uh, some successes in the case of feminism. Um, Can you give our listeners a snapshot of suburban liberalism in the 1970s?
1: Sure. So one of the things I mean, and the other crucial thing that happens in the the early 1970s, and this relates to um, the issue with McGovern um, and McGovern, too, is that you have um, there's there's a really bad there's the national 1973 um recession in massachusetts that becomes a um essentially a depression because one of the things that nixon does is to um is to to do a lot of cuts to defense spending um which really affects people's jobs and so you see actually there's a huge spike in white collar um unemployment um and then but also, and then also within um within um uh, urban communities um and, and rural communities as well. Um, and the other thing is that the state goes through, has the state itself goes through this, um, essentially, um, budgetary crisis. Um, so what I argue is like the combination of those two things, um, has a real effect on suburban, um, suburban liberal politics. Both people are not as, I mean, there's not, not the same kind of, um, sense of kind of generosity. Um, but, um, because of kind of having personal um, personal hard, personal hardships on their um, finances, um but the other side of that is that the the state itself can't provide funding for various different things so with the, the instance of um, the meco program is this voluntary busing program that I look at that's really popular in the suburbs um it started it started by a, a coalition of um, African Americans um, in Boston and then um, suburban liberals to bring students. Um, um, African American students into the into the suburbs, um, and it's state funded, and that um, there's this effort to kind of expand the program um, in the 1970s, um, and um, um, communities refuse to um, refuse to support it um, be without because the state says they can't. They, they, the communities don't have to pay for METCO, um, and but this new budget, this new plan says they have to, um, and communities really, really actively um, fight it, and so um, and ultimately it leaves the program. I'm frozen at the size of, um, of, um, you know, I think what is the, what I can't, I don't have the number, the Mecco numbers off the top of my head, but basically like 500 students. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and so that um, that creates this kind of this the particular kinds of shrinking that you see based on these kinds of new um, new things that happen with the economy. Um, I think that um, for many people, and as I said, that they become much more protective of um, property values, tax rates, and their children's education. And in the 1970s, that happens that you, that, that you see that sort of really doubled down in issues like affordable housing, um, and then. Um, and then with around schools, and with feminism, um, there actually is this kind of outpouring of suburban um, of uh, feminism in the suburbs in the 1970s. But it's often around issues that are not um, what I argue is that it's not ones that are going to sort of create to sort of economic redistribution, um, and so it's things that help that benefit suburban. Lib- white suburban liberals, um, in terms of getting their feminist politics, so like the passage of an ERA, a uh, state ERA, um, but um, efforts to kind of help um, low-income people at- gain access to abortion don't have the same kinds of um, don't have the same kind of a success. Um, and so that's that kind of two-tiered system is what sort of starts to structure um, suburban liberal politics, and then also has an influence on the kind of Democratic Party's politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful, and. Uh we're going to move on to your final chapter. Um, and here you, you look at another loser, uh, <laughs> uh, Michael Dukakis, uh, who, uh, who's actually, um, really important for this new, this new vision of the democratic party, um, you know, uh, ranging from like the embrace of market solutions, um, to, uh, you know, cutting state services to environmentalism, etc. And so, he also ties together your narrative because he came from one of the suburbs that you're writing about. And so um, like McGovern, Dukakis lost in the presidential election. And um, like McGovern as well, his legacy was hidden. Um, So uh, who was Dukakis and um, why should we care about someone who lost a presidential election?
1: Yeah. So I, I guess I am, I, I didn't realize I have empathy for the underdog, I guess, or these kinds of underdogs, but, um, but Duk- so Dukakis is sort of is remembered as the kind of quintessential Massachusetts liberal. So another person who, um, actually the attacks on him by George, um, George H. W. Bush in the presidential election had this effect of sort of positioning him as this kind of, um, this out of touch lib- like sort of liberal from the sixties. Um, and that's not who he who he was, um, and that's one thing I sort of aimed to show. Um, he, as you mentioned, um, was a um, was from um, the suburb of Brookline. Um, he was a kind of, um, in many ways, had this kind of reformist mentality, um, and kind of, in in large part, like a, a real technocrat. Um, he was elected first elected governor um, in 1974, um, and he actually had so he had um, was. Governor from 1974 through 1970 or 75 to 79, um, and then he he lost the election, um, and so he has a term out of office. But um, and then comes back and and is seen as is credited for what's known as the Massachusetts miracle um, of this kind of rebounding of the state of Massachusetts um, in the 1980s, um, largely based on its high tech economy. And so this this transition of kind of helping um, all of this this sort of um, industry that around height um, around tech that many of which had been sort of part of government and um, university based programs but with um, shifts over to the sort of the um, the private sector and so he helps to sort of um, to helps to kind of he' he shouldn't get all credit for it or as much credit as he takes but um but he um he helps this kind of rebounding of the of this sort of post-industrial economy um and as and i it does really believe in this kind of market um a market approach so it's this idea of kind of he's he's part of who become known as the atari Democrats, um, of kind of this faith in um in growth in private sector growth as the sort of solution to problems and also applying kind of a market uh, market ideology to um, social service programs as well um, and so um, another thing that he institutes in Massachusetts um, is a kind of work-based welfare program um, the uh, sort of a precursor to um, the welfare and work programs of the 90s um and is isn't and at the same time isn't support of things like um like He's pro-choice. He's pro-environment. So he combines kinds of aspects of um, of Democratic Party politics, um, and it's this combination um, and really his success in in Massachusetts in the sort of Massachusetts economy that leads him to become the um, the choice of the Democratic um, the the nominee the Democratic Party's nomination in 1988. Um, and the fascinating thing about one of the fascinating things to me that's wild is that he actually was up in the polls in July of 1988, um, and so he was he was actually a very successful candidate. Um, um, he ends up losing um, um, pretty sub- substantially but um, one of the things that happens in the election is that he like McGovern does really well with um, with um, white-collar voters um, especially in in um, in the suburbs um, and so what I argue in the book is that this is part of a kind of blueprint a lot of what Dukakis stands for um, is picked up by Bill Clinton um, in the '90s um, and sort of reconstituted as part of its of kind of what the Democratic Party's main agenda becomes, um, and so you see that in the '90s, and then um, and then um, you can trace it through um, Obama. Taking a similar kind of approach of kind of discording of high tech industry, um, suburban, um, su- and, and like, and suburban, seeing so sort of the suburban voters as crucial to um, his ability to capture um, the election, which it in, in both the cases of Clinton and Obama, it was.
0: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just uh, a blueprint, but there was also like a lot of um, personnel that um, moved from uh, Dukakis' campaign uh, and into um, the Clinton and Gore uh, administration in the 90s. Um, For instance, the economic advisors Robert Reich and uh, Lawrence Summers uh, ended up in uh, the, the Clinton administration.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Lester Thurow, who is a long time, who is a um economist um and was really influential to a lot of these So, Yeah, it, I mean a lot of the ideas in particular on things around the economy. Mm-hmm. Um you see the sort of same ideas coming um coming to the fore. Uh
0: you you've you've kind of just did this in uh, your previous response, but I, I want to uh, um talk more about what your book looks like, uh, or how the present looks like uh, after going through this book. Uh, and so um, one thing that I uh, really could not stop thinking about when I was reading your book was um, that really famous or infamous Chuck Schumer line from the 2016 election, uh, where he said, you know, for every blue-collar Democrat we lose in Western Pennsylvania, we'll pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs in Philadelphia. And you, you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin. Uh, and so these are obviously, uh, you know, famous last words, so to speak um, but uh, I, I wonder like if, if you could say more about the, um, the the democratic strategy in like the 2016 election um, and some maybe some of the the different directions that the Democrats are being tugged in right now uh, and just some of the problems that they're facing
1: sure so one of the things that I want I mean I think that the book Indicates, and I've been really interested. I mean, I I was when after the election happened, I was sort of like, uh, oh no, um, no one is going to. I mean, and and I guess the listeners of this podcast, but um, but um, you know, you don't have a huge audience anyway. But um, but there was attention to it in the in because there's not there's not a huge amount of scholarship um, around 2000, I mean around the Democratic Party, and so um but I was worried that, that was going to sort of go away. And I actually think there's been this F this longstanding effort to kind of understand what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can look at it that the book indicates or what I've looked at is sort of implicates that some of the trade-offs of, the party's relentless efforts to, um, to appeal to this particular um, group of voters um, and to use that as its strategy. And so it uses this idea that who they need to win um, are, I mean, it's not even win suburban liberals, that's sort of who they have um, as their base, but particularly suburban moderate voters um, as kind of crucial to the the party's viability. I think that um, what so, and I think that the election proved, um, in many ways, um, especially amongst, and I don't even think, I mean, I think there's this effort now to kind of try to appeal to Trump voters or white, the white and working class been left behind. But I actually, think the other side of it is that the party had sort of abandoned a lot of the kinds of, um, I mean, what the, this particular approach has done is to alienate a lot of people who would potentially be part of their, um, be part of who, and, and were part of their coalition for a long time. Um, and you saw that amongst the people who, the, um, the, the, the people frustrated at its kind of market oriented approaches and, and pro and pro growth models um, in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And then I think also just the, the, um, the lack of turnout amongst um, amongst um, on, on people of color um, had led to this kind of a, a sense of kind of, the, that the party had sort of moved away or had sort of it's it, in, it's a pro and it's a focus on who, who I call suburban liberals, but these kind of knowledge-based um, voters, um, had lost a lot of these other kinds of groups, and I think one of the frustrations has been um, in the twenty since twenty sixteen, um, is that Schumer has kind of reemphasized that point, point. Um, and the this kind of Democratic establishment is still wedded to this idea that, um, who the way to win is to focus on suburban moderates. Um, and so that's kind of been this, this effort that those are the kinds of people they can peel off from Trump, um, and the Republican party. And I don't, you know, I think, and, um, I should say, um, uh, Matt Lasser and I've been working on this op-ed about this for a long time that might come out pretty soon, um, I think that one of the things that this has done is it's not just continued to alienate these particular v- voters, which I think is really important, that, that it's kind of, it's also not sort of addressing who, um, that many white suburbanites are not the only people who live in the suburbs. Um, and so you have, I mean, the suburbs themselves have become far more diverse and also far more, um, I mean, th- there's now more poverty in, in the suburbs and there are, there isn't. Cities at this point, but I think the other thing that does is it has really, and what I try to show in my book is that it's not even just about the short term elect these sort of electoral trade offs of taking this approach, which which I don't know always has the tra- the the sort of benefits that the party thinks it does. I think the bigger issue is that it has really the the policy implications of it are really problematic um, in the fact that when you have that if you have suburban voter, the suburban voters as the kind of people that you're envisioning as your base, you're not fighting for the kinds of policies that help um, that help um all Americans and ad- and fundamentally address um, inequality, um, and that's I think when I what I see as kind of the implications um, with the par- the party at at the sort of crossroads is taking this kind of going back to this old strategy um, is what is leading to kind of the, the party's inability to address um, some some sort of of these other kind of fundamental issues.
0: Wonderful, and that's a perfect way to leave the book. Uh, can you tell our listeners what you're working on right now?
1: Sure. So, um, I, what I, I think often happens with, um, authors is that, um, I real I started to sort of write my second book in while, well, um, in the last chapter of my first. And so <laughs> as I was working on my, the, um, the chapter on Dukakis and the Dem- and the Democratic Party in the 1980s, um, and 70s and 80s, I became really interested in, in their, um, their, um, embrace of this kind of market-based solutions, um, to address problems. Um, and, um, decided to pursue that further. And so I'm working on a book right now um, that's called, the title is Doing Good. Um, and it's looking at, and it's the the subtitle is um, Public Policy in the Market from um, the War on Poverty to the Clinton Foundation. Um, and so I'm looking at these market-based solutions to address social inequality um, and how those have become, the, um, the Democratic Party has fought for them. And so in some ways, it's an effort to kind of um, historicize the concept of doing well by doing good and think about how that's become really the ethos of the Democratic Party um, since the 1970s. Um, And so I'm looking um, at a lot of things like um, programs like microfinance, um, um, charter schools, um, cap and trade in terms of environmentalism, a lot of programs around um, community development and banking um, that um, that start to emerge. I guess another one, there's a lot of them, but um, the digital divide and social entrepreneurship and all these kinds of things. Um, and so thinking about um, how they come to represent what I call a Democrat, democratic neoliberalism, hmm. Um, but the ways in which they've actually um, that there's often this idea that the right is and conservatives are who've led to kind of a, a pro a, um, market approach in the United States. But I'm looking at how the Democratic Party um, and, the, um, and this particular sort of ideology and ethos has been equally important and kind, of, um, kind of encouraging um, the, um, sort of this, this sort of, um, I guess, sort of um, embrace of the market. Um, and these ideas of the market to solve problems and how that's also led to a kind of shrinking of the social welfare state. So um, I will say one thing that's ended up happening with the project um, is I was, um, after working on my first book, was um, sick of just studying one place. Um, And so I really wanted to do a national study and now it's turned into a transnational study. Mm. Um, But I now am... um, wistful of my ability to do just one place because it is really challenging to do a lot of different places. So it, it's been, and, and to do this big, big project. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's been, um, it's both been fun to do something new, but it's also, um, a, a a challenge, but it definitely has its roots in my first project and this continued effort of mine to sort of think about, um, the, um, the liberalism and its transformations and its implications,
0: Great. Well, I really cannot wait till uh, that book drops and I can finally read it. Uh, and I, want...
1: oh, I think it'll be your, like your grandchildren will be reading it. <laughs> okay. All
0: right. Well, then I'll, 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 I'll try to tone down my, uh, my eagerness. Um, but uh, I really want to thank you for talking to me today. And uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really fun to get a chance to think about the book again. Um, and um, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity.